Hello, everyone, and welcome to the January 4th edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with the Floyd Skarin Law Firm. Happy New Year, and thank you for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. An injured worker's $575,000 jury verdict in a discrimination claim against Charter Communications was affirmed by the California Court of Appeals. Charter Communications hired the plaintiff, Anthony Lave, in 2008 as a broadband technician. About two years after he was hired, Lave injured his back while working. He filed a workers' compensation claim, and although he continued to work, Lave ultimately received a permanent disability rating of 30%. Years later, in 2014, Lave asked for time off, claiming he needed to take his wife to a medical appointment. Lave's supervisor failed to respond for over a week. Frustrated with the lack of a response, Lave complained to Human Resources, but eventually abandoned his request for time off. This problem occurred again over another request for time off a few days later. Lave claimed that his relationship with his supervisor worsened after he bypassed him and went to Human Resources regarding his leave requests. Lave testified that his supervisor would stare him down and disciplined him for minor infractions and continued to delay his responses to Lave's leave requests. Later, Lave's pre-existing back injury flared up in early 2015, leading him to take one day of sick leave. When he returned, the same supervisor issued a disciplinary action known as a milestone to Lave for taking a sick day off. Lave complained about the milestone to another human resources employee and then, days later, filed a formal complaint against his supervisor. The local human resources department said it would, quote, handle the situation. Lave then reopened his workers' compensation claim and required time off, which was approved by Charter's own physician. He then returned to work but was suspended in less than a month because of a customer complaint. Lave filed another complaint with Human Resources claiming his supervisor was in retaliation for taking time off work for his industrial injury. Lave never received a response to his complaint and was later terminated from employment. Thus, Mr. Lave filed this lawsuit against Charter, alleging he was retaliated against based on his disability related to his back injury, also for taking time off to accompany his wife to her medical appointment, for taking sick leave, for taking medical leave, and for filing complaints arising from his disability accommodation and leave requests. A jury heard the case and awarded him $575,000, and later the court on its own awarded $400,800 in attorney fees rather than the requested amount of more than a million. The judgment was affirmed in the unpublished case of Lave v. Charter Communications. The appellate court found that Charter failed to undermine the, un, 
undermine the jury's ultimate finding in Lave's favor and award of damages. And our fraud report. The Employment Development Department remains an easy fraud target, even from some prisoners while they are still in jail. Hundreds of thousands of dollars have been taken fraudulently in two separate schemes that targeted the unemployment insurance benefits that were intended for Californians hit hardest by the COVID-19 pandemic shutdown. A federal grand jury in Fresno returned an indictment involving a prison-based scheme out of the Central Valley, California, women's facility in Chowchilla. A prison inmate, 36-year-old Sholanda Thomas, and a parolee, 37-year-old Christina Smith, were indicted for the submission of several fraudulent EDD unemployment insurance claims in inmates' names. Recorded jail phone calls and emails showed that Thomas and others engaged in bundling. That is, they obtained the names, dates of birth, and social security numbers for inmates and relayed that information to Smith to submit the fraudulent claims. The claims were submitted and benefits were loaded onto debit cards that were mailed to the addresses provided. The applications for the claims falsely stated that the inmates had worked within the prescribed periods as hairstylists, barbers, and other occupations, and that they were available to work, which was not true because they were incarcerated. The claims would have been denied if accurate answers had been given. The EDD and the United States have suffered a loss of over $200,000 as a result of this jail fraud. Smith kept Thomas's share of the scheme in a shoebox pending her release from prison. In the second scheme, 43-year-old Andrea M. Gervais, who lives in Roseville, a former EDD employee, allegedly participated in a mail fraud scheme involving about 100 fraudulent pandemic unemployment assistance claims. At least 12 of the 100 claims were processed for payment, and over $200,000 in benefits were paid out to Gervais's Roseville address in the form of Bank of America debit cards. The total value of all fraudulent claims from her residence was at least $2 million. The investigation began when a claim using the identity of a sitting United States senator for about $21,000 was discovered. This fraudulent claim was processed for payment, and Gervais received a debit card in the U.S. Senator's name. 55-year-old Jorge Gerardo Maldonado, who lives in Sacramento, was charged with three felony counts of insurance fraud. He allegedly underreported payroll and employees to save on workers' compensation insurance premiums, resulting in a $688,000 loss to three insurance carriers while operating his Sacramento cleaning company, ProCare Building Maintenance, which he's owned since 2014. In 2016, a ProCare employee was injured while on the job, and a workers' comp insurance claim was filed with one of the company's insurance carriers. 
During a re review of the claim, it was found that ProCare underreported payroll and failed to report the end of policy payroll to the insurance company as the policy required. The alleged underreported payroll was over $5 million. Dr. Randy Rosen, an Orange County surgeon and jail inmate accused in a $29 million insurance fraud scheme and who is facing decades behind bars, was temporarily set free after testing positive for coronavirus. Rosen, who was involved in a civil federal lawsuit involving a health care fraud scheme at the Long Beach Hospital that was settled in 2017 and involved many of the California workers' compensation carriers, was indicted in now this new criminal case, along with his co-defendant, Lisa Vismanos. Vismanos owns the Wellness Wave Surgical Center in Beverly Hills, and the Lotus Labs Medical Laboratory in Los Alamitos. The two entered into a scheme specifically targeting patients from addiction recovery rehabs to bill their private medical insurance carriers for two types of procedures, a non-FDA-approved naltrexone implant and a cortisone injection. Dr. Rosen and Vismanos were first arrested last June on a combined 144 counts, including money laundering, submitting fraudulent insurance claims, and withholding material facts on insurance claims. The Orange County District Attorney called the release of Dr. Rosen from jail, who is being monitored now by an electronic bracelet, unfair. Rosen's attorney, however, argued that Rosen was a, at substantial risk of a poor outcome of the coronavirus because of his multiple comorbidities aggravated by his current COVID-19 infection. Rosen faces a maximum sentence of 84 years in state prison if convicted as charged, while his co-defendant, Vismanos, faces 36 years in prison. After Rosen's positive COVID-19 test, he has been released, and now the district attorney is calling him a flight risk And since, since he could leave the country. And in regulatory news, Cal OSHA has cited eight more employers for not protecting workers from COVID-19 during inspections at meat processing facilities across the state. The cited employers failed to take required steps to prevent COVID-19 infection in the workplace. Officials say that enforcement of COVID-19 protections at meatpacking and food processing facilities has been a priority of Cal-OSHA, given the high rates of positive cases and alarming number of deaths among food processing workers. Cal-OSHA cited Smithfield Foods Incorporated in Vernon $58,100 in penalties for multiple violations and including two that were serious in nature, and its staffing firm, City Staff Solutions, was also cited $47,000 for two serious violations. Both of these employers failed to ensure that workers used face coverings properly in production areas and during breaks, and failed to provide effective training and instruction on how the virus is spread and how to disinfect areas properly.
Smithfield Foods Incorporated also failed to report serious COVID-19 illnesses to Kalosha. Another company, Central Valley Meat Company, was cited when co-workers were infected with COVID-19 for failing to provide face coverings and ensure their proper use. And in another case, several One World Beef Packing employees were hospitalized for complications related to COVID-19, including one employee who died. When Calcio inspected the Brawley facility, investigators noted that workers in the production lines and quality assurance area were not provided protective barriers and were working too close to each other. An on-site inspection at California Farms Meat Company confirmed the employer did not implement physical distancing procedures or install barriers in the production area where workers separated chicken by hand and operated machines with close distance of each other. The employer was cited for $11,700 in proposed penalties for the serious violation. And last July, Cal OSHA opened inspections with CLW Foods and its staffing firms, California Enterprises Employment and HR Staffing Solutions, in Vernon. The employers were cited in December for multiple violations, including some categorized as serious, for failing to address COVID-19 hazards by training employees and ensuring proper physical distancing procedures on conveyor lines, in the production area, and when employees took breaks. The Internal Revenue Service just announced that the standard mileage rate for business miles will decrease to 56 cents per mile as of this January 1. This is down 1.5 cents from the rate of 57.5 cents per mile for 2020. As a result, the rate that California Workers' Compensation Claims Administrators pay injured workers for travel related to medical care or evaluation of their injuries will also decrease to $0.56 per year per mile. The new Workers' Compensation Medical Mileage Rate will apply for 2021 travel dates, regardless of the date of injury on the claim. But for 2020 travel dates, claims administrators should continue to pay 57.5 cents per mile. The California Labor Code and the Government Code requires claims administrators to reimburse injured workers for such expenses at the rate tied to the IRS published mileage rate. The IRS bases the standard mileage rate on an annual study of the fixed and variable costs of operating an automobile, which includes the cost of gasoline and depreciation. A new form with the 2021 rate has now been posted, and for reimbursements made for 2021 travel, this form should be used. The California Division of Workers' Compensation announced the dates for its 28th annual educational conference. However, the conference this year will take place on a virtual platform, and it's scheduled for March 24, 25, and 26, 2021. Sessions will also be available to view on demand through April 9. This is the largest workers' compensation educational event in the state, and it's usually held in March in both Northern and Southern California. 
However, this year it will be online only during the COVID-19 pandemic. Speakers from the Division of Workers' Compensation and the private sector will address the most current topics and issues confronting claims administrators, medical providers, attorneys, rehabilitation counselors, and others involved in workers' comp. Continuing education credits will be offered for California adjusters and attorneys, HR professionals, and rehabilitation providers, as well as DWC QME credits. Last November, gig companies including Uber, Lyft, DoorDash, and Instacart helped pass California's Proposition 22, effectively writing their own labor law. Now, the same companies plan to bring similar legislation elsewhere. Near the end of last year, the companies launched a group called the App-Based Work Alliance to support their agenda. Industry supported bills in the works in New York State and Illinois would, like the California ballot measure, which passed last November, deny gig workers status as employees, and the workers' compensation paid family leave, sick pay, unemployment insurance, and minimum wage guarantees that came with it. But the bills could give gig workers the right to form something resembling a union, allowing the workers to bargain with multiple employers to create wage floors and standards. The California Proposition 22 was written by gig companies who then poured $205 million into supporting it. This was the most expensive campaign of its kind in the state's history. Proposition 22 is nearly irreversible, since the law needs a supermajority of seven-eighths of the state's legislature to be changed. At the same time, gig companies invested in bringing the Proposition 22 fight elsewhere. Yet, Lyft stood up to a political action committee called Illinoisans for Independent Work that spent at least 660000 on ad buys and political contributions in local elections. In August, Uber released a white paper laying out its plans for Independent Contractor Plus, a new employment category it hopes to promote across the country. Now in New York, a less-than-traditional gig market in many ways is set to be among the first states where a post-Proposition 22 battle might play out. A constellation of gig companies and allies introduced the New York Coalition for Independent Work, which describes its mission as protecting self-employed app-based contractors, independence and flexibility, while also working to provide them with needed benefits. But the state's relatively labor-friendly climate means that gig companies will have to tread carefully and that a pitched battle is likely ahead. Congress is poised to include a ban on surprise medical bills as part of its massive year-end spending package. In a joint statement, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Senate Minority Le Leader Chuck Schumer confirmed that bipartisan, bicameral legislation 
will end surprise building for emergency and scheduled care will be a part of a spending bill, which also includes coronavirus release relief money. The long-sought-after legislation will protect insured patients from receiving expensive medical bills when they inadvertently receive out-of-network care. Although lawmakers in both parties had been pushing for a plan to fix the issue for years with the support President Trump, who had made it a key campaign priority. The effort drew fierce opposition from powerful lobbying groups, however, representing the healthcare industry, who questioned how much the insurers would have to pay the doctor once a patient is removed from the equation. Lawmakers also diluted a measure that would have required health insurance to disclose information to employers about their drug costs and rebates through their contracts with middlemen known as Pharmacy Benefit Managers, or PBMs. The legislation now calls for insurers to submit more general information on medical costs and prescription drug spending, according to the article in Politico. And in medical news, pharmaceutical companies are holding out hope that the technology used to develop breakthrough COVID-19 vaccines is flexible enough to provide for seasonal shots in case immunity gained from initial vaccination is short-lived. The first COVID-19 vaccine approved for use in the U.S., which is the Pfizer and BioNTech shot, was purportedly 95% effective in preventing symptomatic coronavirus infections in a large study. Positive study results have also been released for Moderna's vaccine, which secured also an emergency use authorization by the Food and Drug Administration on December 18. But the jury is still out on how long the immunity induced by these rapidly developed mRNA vaccines will last. Despite the encouraging clinical trial results, Pfizer is being cautioned about speculating on the durability of immune response elicited by these, elicited by these vaccines. Pfizer said that if it turns out that the induced immunity lasts only a few months, the vaccines are suitable for repeated administration as booster shots. If a mutation of the COVID-19 virus affects Pfizer's vaccine effectiveness, the company said mRNA technology will enable rapid development of adjustments. The technology also allows for a fast production process without the need for complex mammalian cell systems used in traditional vaccine production. Multiple other COVID-19 vaccine candidates using a variety of technologies are under development by other large pharmaceutical companies. Viral vector vaccines, one from Johnson & Johnson and another from a partnership between AstraZeneca and Oxford University, are in late-stage clinical trials. Researchers will be focused next year on determining which, which vaccine produces the longest-lived immune response against COVID-19. Of particular importance is the immune response of T-cells, including CD8 plus cells, immune system agents that kill off virus-infected cells in the body.
So that is all of our news and our events this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcast and special report using your iPhone, iPad, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. And we also publish our daily news podcast and other utilities on our free WorkCompApps.com smartphone app. Again, I'm Renee Fols with Floyd Scarin, Manukian Langeman. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news.